0: kind of this hour we're going to talk about coronavirus numbers and then what is the toll that the coronavirus is having on our kids you're listening to the common good well hello there everybody welcome to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian from glad to have you with us on this thursday afternoon uh you can find us on Facebook the common good radio show that's the common good radio show you can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at common good talk online 1160 hope.com and our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate and review Ian uh, like we have started every show this week guess what it's uh it's hot outside today mm-hmm. I think it's hotter than every other day so far this week
1: I don't know that that's accurate but I uh, I'll go with it
0: I think it is. But, you know, when you're up near 100, does it really is 97 and 99 really different? I don't know. Man,
1: I, mean, I think uh, it's 91 right now. Oh, well, gosh, get out the winter coats. Just say uh, when, you, you, round, when you round up like that, it's like uh, <laughs> my mom when I was a kid, if it was like 705, she's like, all right, guys, we got to go. It's almost eight. I'm like, I don't know that it's, it's almost, <laughs> 705 qualifies as almost eight. But, you know,
0: what do I know? And uh, the audience wants to know,
1: are you still, did you still run in the heat today? Did it still happen? I wasn't able to run today because of some car issues, but I will later tonight. Okay. Oh, car issues. Those are never fun. Uh, okay. Well, hey, let's start by talking the same way
0: we've been doing for a lot of the shows ever since the middle of March, early March, uh, and that's coronavirus. And uh, wanted to talk first just about uh, where are we at as a state? Okay, So at uh, NBCNewsChicago.com, it says, by the numbers, uh, Illinois records highest daily increase in COVID-19 cases since early June. Uh, But when you get into it, uh, it's not as bad as it sounds. It says coronavirus cases have been trending downward in recent weeks, but had a jump in positive tests on Wednesday. Uh, According to data released by the Illinois Department of Public Health, state labs reported 980 new coronavirus cases on Wednesday. Uh, the largest single-day increase since June 5th. The positive tests also pushed Illinois perilously close to breaking a long-running streak of maintaining a daily positivity rate under 3%. Speaking of rounding up, we are just short of that at uh, 2.99%. And this article, which we've got up on our Facebook page, uh, has all sorts of stats that I didn't know about positivity rates going down, where it was at its highest and uh, the amount of testing that we're doing. Uh, and and very interesting. And so what I did want to talk about was an article that you put up on our Facebook page that has gotten a just a little bit of traction on the Facebook page. Out of the New York Post, it says media is obsessed with COVID cases, but death rate is what's important. So I thought maybe you could kind of give us the background on just what the argument is they're making. And then I'm, co- I'm, uh curious if you buy the argument or if you think they're a little off
1: oh boy how do i even summarize it i mean there's a there's a number of really interesting comments some have been deleted since this was originally posted which is always hard to track i really got to get better at you know reading them when they're posted but uh let's see david cook who we've mentioned a couple of times a significant rise in total cases should not be ignored but the percentage hospitalized. And of course, death rate percentage are, in my mind, better indicators of the level of danger. One cannot ignore the rise of cases, of course. And in areas where there is significant risk, uh, a significant rise, masks are a wise choice. In our area, the cases have gone up, but more testing is available, which might account for at least part of the rise. Hospital is not overwhelmed yet, but that should be monitored. And then some people started weighing in. So uh, Mel said morbidity is just as important as mortality. Recent research shows that Long-term effects of the virus are likely, including damage to the lungs, kidney, heart, and more. Even asymptomatic patients are presenting with some organ damage. So they had a a bit of a back and forth there. Um, Cindy Vincent made a comment about gunshots versus COVID in NYC. (laughs) Janet said, it's unfortunate that this is so widely politicized. The wearing of masks has become a political mantra, as is everything else in our country. It's all dangerous. We've talked about that a little bit. Jordan said, I don't think the death rate is what's important at all. Many people, even asymptomatic ones, are ending up with permanent lung damage from this. Furthermore, when people start saying, yeah, it's not going to kill me, they start taking it less seriously, using fewer precautions and potentially spreading it to people it will kill. So um, that to me is probably, I mean, that's two, two out of a handful of comments that mentioned asymptomatic patients and the long-term effects. So, and again, I don't, I mean, New York Post, every, every publication has a slant. Some are a little more obvious than others, but, um, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think that only measuring or counting mortality rate is a a helpful way necessarily to fully get our heads around. It's obviously a consideration, but because of all the stuff we're finding out about the long-term damage it can do, I think, I think those things need to be included too.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. How are you, uh, Uh, kind of deciphering, if you will, between, you know, we've talked about this a bunch, but I think every time new charts and new graphs and new, uh, statistics come out, kind of the cases going up, mortality going down, hospitalizations seem to be going up, but at a slower rate, these kind of, they almost at first blush seem like they contrast each other, um, you know, it, are we just getting better at treating it, or is it less deadly? How, how are you processing? You neither you nor I are you immunologists or doctors, but as you look at it, does the data of less deaths make you feel safer, or the data of higher cases make you feel more in danger? Where are you at with that?
1: Well, I think you used an important phrase there. At first blush, we we've got to stop making our decisions based on first blush information. I think the the starting point I would say is. I do the difficult task of actually reading the studies and the articles. I still feel like there's a lot, there's a lot that's being done to sort of sensationalize on both sides and clickbait is still a thing and people are still looking to get shares and posts and tweets and all that. So assume all of that's still going on to, to make a decision or come to a conclusion simply based on a headline or one graph to me is probably not the most healthy, holistic way to go about it. Um, To me, the, the issue is is not necessarily or even primarily for me about my safety. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit even with Sky. I mm. was we saying like safety has become like the number one thing that the Western Evangelical Church has become most preoccupied with. So for me, even if I feel perfectly safe, I'm still wearing a mask, not because I feel like I'm in danger, but as one way that I hope that I can love those around me, either by legitimately maybe protecting them from something, or even if it's just a matter of helping lower some of their anxiety, regardless of where you land on this politically or scientifically. So all of that to say, you know, we, we commit nine minutes to each of these segments, which is not nearly enough time to dive into the complexities of any of these conversations. But that's sort of the point. That's why we post the articles online. I think when you read stuff from the New York post, I think, all right, well, there's a lot of opinion in this. There's a lot fewer statistics than I would like to see. And, and we need to be careful even with, you know, on our end, what are we willing to share? Cause you, you bring it up a lot of times, you know, we don't necessarily agree with everything we share either. Right. So it right. has to be, I think we need to do a better job. We, maybe I with just simply saying, I think I need to read more, have conversations with people I know, you know, I, you know, we, most of us have friends in the medical field to some degree, have a conversation with a friend rather than, what this publication or that publication, or this expert says, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to be said about finding some of our information from the people in our circles that we actually know mm-hmm. we can trust and, uh, and starting there. But at the end of the day, yeah, there's just still so much that I look at and go, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. And that is, that can be really humbling.
0: And I would say, as you mentioned, the politicalization, I would just, you know, banging that drum right now of, Like, everything is political, but it doesn't need to be our primary way of viewing everything. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. uh, how can we care for our neighbors? As you said, how can we love our neighbors? Uh, And the virus is still out there, so do your reading. Uh, Personally, I feel strongly and wear your mask, and uh, let's continue doing what each of us can do individually. So, we like to start, uh, most of the time, uh, through this pandemic, just talking about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. We'll talk some more about it during today's uh, show Well, we're glad that you are with us today. Uh, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Pastor David Ireland, uh, talking about his book about uh, racial reconciliation. Talk about that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, alongside Ian Simkins. my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. As we say each day, when we have the pleasure to be joined by a guest, uh, we're always excited for that. And with that in mind, uh, we are joined right now uh, with by Pastor David Ireland. Uh, Pastor Ireland, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure, Brian. And Ian, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Would you just introduce yourself, however you see fit to our audience today? Well, I'm married to the same woman for 36 years. No reflection right on my age, because in Jersey, can <laughs> get married at two months old. <laughs> so, <laughs> we have two daughters. They're adults now, and so a proud dad. I'm pastoring now for 34 years, and uh, a church that has about 70 different nationalities, planted wow. it when I was 24 years old with six people, and now it's wow. close to 10,000 people. So uh, I've been busy.
1: Yeah, no kidding. My goodness. All right. So a, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book called One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides, which is a very pertinent conversation right now. Tell us a little bit about that book and sort of your hope for that book.
2: The book really takes on a coaching perspective. The topic of diversity is a thorny one, and some people are afraid of it. I have functioned as a diversity coach for the National Basketball Association, as well as been involved in consulting over the years. My doctoral dissertation was on the black-white relationships in large multiracial churches. Very technical, the topic of a dissertation, but what I did do with this book is I come alongside of the reader And I try not to intimidate them. I said, let me coach you in diversity and how to get along with people that are different than yourselves. And then I used the biblical framework, like how Paul coached Peter. Peter Mm -hmm. had a problem Mm -hmm. with diversity. It was evidenced in Galatians 2. And so Mm -hmm. Peter knew how to do ministry in a monolithic setting. But when he came to Antioch, he couldn't function properly. And he was very divisive by his actions. And so Paul coached him. And coaching is not a mean spirited experience. It's it's a loving, gracious experience that takes place where someone confronts you respectfully, but they bring an awareness to you that, hey, something's amiss with you and I want to help you get better. Hmm.
0: And David, I'm wondering, that sounds fascinating. What are some of those coaching points? What are some of the biggest points that you uh, come alongside and make for people?
2: One is confrontation and confrontation takes place either internally or externally. Internally is when you're convicted that your actions don't align with your values. Peter didn't even get convicted by internal confrontation or conviction. So confrontation had to be external. Paul had to confront him. Hmm. And one of the ways I do that, uh, Brian is by, I have this workbook that people can download. That's free. If they visit the website, oneinchristbook.com there's a 70 page downloadable workbook that could be used either personal for reflection Hmm. or in group and so I come alongside of the readers I mentioned to bring confrontation second aspect of coaching is when I talk about advocacy advocacy is when I'm able to be a voice for someone who is not able to speak for themselves and Paul did that for his Gentile congregation they may have been intimidated by Peter's stature They may have not felt as if they were strong enough, knowledgeable enough, competent enough. And so Paul defended them. Again, advocacy Mm -hmm. is when I'm able to take the posture for different groups. As I mentioned Mm -hmm. before, I pastor a church of some 70 different nationalities. So here I am an African-American man that I provide pastoral care and leadership to Asians, to whites, to Latinos, to Native Americans. So a broad cadre and swath of races. And I, I'm humbled by that because for someone to in care themselves to me, open up their hearts, be very, very vulnerable with me, it means then that they're trusting me to be an advocate for them when When it's necessary, when I need to speak for them or understand their their concerns, I must be able to do that.
1: Hmm. Okay, so so Brian and I are both pastors, and one of the questions that I keep hearing from other pastors that their congregations are asking them about is there seems to be this mantra almost of people saying, "Pastor, why are you talking about racial reconciliation? Just stick to the gospel. You're a pastor. You're a preacher." why Why are you bringing things like race and racism into the conversation what What would you say to someone who is maybe thinking that or is hearing that from their congregation?
2: I would say I appreciate their frankness that's number one. I would also say that the the topic of race, racism, prejudice, ethnicity that's all interwoven within the gospel. Mm-hmm. in fact, the Great Commission. Is is an ambassadorial charge to be cross-cultural. The Scripture tells us Jesus says, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation." And that word mm-hmm. "nation," as you guys know, it comes from the Greek word "ethnos," where we get the English word "ethnic." Mm-hmm. So Jesus mm-hmm. says, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every ethnicity," which then tells me certain things. And uh, you know, I do a lot of ministry uh, across the, the globe, and. One of the things that happens when I'm in South, South Korea, the South Koreans now are, are faced with a challenge that they have not dealt with before. They said to me, look, South Korea, there are about 10% that are not non-Koreans. We have no experience being multicultural. We have no experience being, being interna- interracial in terms of how we do ministry or intercultural. Can you give us some tips? Because they've never had to deal with it. Right. A friend of mine does ministry in China. The Chinese guy said to my friend who is white American, he said, look, we understand martyrdom. We have no problem dying for Jesus, but we don't understand multicultural ministry. Can you teach us how to do ministry in a diverse context? Now, if that was America, I'd say, don't teach me how to be a martyr. I don't want to be a martyr. (laughs) <laughs> so, but I'm just simply saying that when members of my congregation ask those questions, I look at that as an open door to challenge them, just like Jesus challenged Nicodemus. That centerpiece of the conversation there in John 3, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that statement was revolutionary to Nicodemus because first century Jews. And Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jews, taught that God's love is exclusive. He only loves Jews. And for mm-hmm. Jesus to say God loves the world is revolutionary. It blew Nicodemus' mind. Yeah, what Jesus was saying was that God loves everybody everywhere, even those who don't love him. Mm-hmm. So I challenge mm-hmm. people about the gospel of reconciliation, which, is, which calls us to go into all the world and charges us to be, you know, to be ambassadors to all nations. That's good. Uh, pastor Allen, I'm wondering, uh, when you say you pastor a church with 60
0: nationalities. I guess I have two questions. One, was that your goal to have a church made up of many different nationalities? And two, that's very uh, not common for other churches. What would you say to pastors or churches that want to become uh, more multi-ethnic?
2: First, uh, it is intentional. Prejudice is everyone's respo- is everyone's problem. Reconciliation must be everyone's responsibility. It does require intentionality. Mm-hmm. Great question. When our church began, my wife was expecting our first child and the church was just two weeks old. I was 24 years old. I had no experience with church. I had been trained as an engineer and now I was in seminary at the time. I-, I didn't even know how to spell church. She asked me to go to the grocery store to pick up some items for her. And so here's my expectant wife having all these desires for different kinds of foods that should not be in the same basket. And so here I'm walking Uh down this aisle in a grocery store with this little red handbasket, picking up the items off the shelf for my wife. And I got to one aisle, I took the item off the shelf, put it in my basket. And for the first time in my life, I heard the audible voice of God because I looked at the other end of the corridor. I saw whites. I saw African-Americans. I saw Latinos. I saw Asians. I saw biracial people. And for the first time, Brian, Ian, the Lord said to me, David, why can't it be like that in my house? And I started crying uncontrollably. And to get context, I'm not a very emotional person. If you ever watch Star Trek, I'm the Vulcan. Give me the facts. (laughs) So here I'm weeping uncontrollably in a very sloppy kind of way in this grocery store because I heard God's concern. And so for the past 34 years, I've been chasing after that because I want to please God. He says, why can't my house be like that? Hmm. And so is it intentional? Absolutely. Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it teachable? Yes. Yes. And and let me just get technical a little bit. There's a theory called the social exchange theory. And the theory simply says the only reason why I'm going to cross over my racial, cultural and ethnic divide to come into your world is that I gain something from your world that I can't gain from my own. Mm -hmm. Now, when I did my dissertation, I had to find out why are these churches racially diverse Sometimes the senior pastor was white, other times the senior pastor was black. And I understand there are different races there, but I wanted to graduate, so I limited my dissertation to just the black-white relationship (laughs) in large multiracial churches in America. I found out that the church grows transracially for one of four reasons, and this is getting to the question as to can we, or can I as a pastor, help my church become cross-cultural multiracial? Is this something that I can do? And the answer is Yes. The church grows transracially for one of four reasons. Reason number one, and I got this information from doing you know, all of my dissertation studies, assessing, focus groups, interviews, the, all of the, the trimmings of doctoral research to be able to come up with the answer to this question. One answer is that the, it's a sov- the sovereignty of God. Just like Azusa Street revival in 1906 was racially diverse. God showed up. Everybody wanted to have an encounter with God. I put that to the side. I can't control the sovereignty of God. God's independent. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. Hmm. The second reason why the church grows transracially is the worship experience. A personal drive by a hundred churches where everybody looks like them to get to that one particular church because something transformational takes place in the worship that changes them, Hmm. that lets them feel like I need to be here. Third mm-hmm. reason why the church grows in a racially diverse way is the pastor, not the preaching, the person. Something mm-hmm. flows out of that pastor's life that is so transformational. Again, I'll drive by a hundred churches where everybody looks like me to get there because when that pastor speaks and ministers, mm-hmm. not he, he may not even be able to preach himself out of a wet paper bag. But something <laughs> flows out of his life that's so transformative that shapes the listener. The fourth the reason bad. is this. It's the sense of belonging. I feel I like I belong. There's a sense of community. So again, I'll drive by 100 churches where everybody looks like me to go there because when I go there, I feel like I'm at home. So the last three reasons can be influenced and shaped and worked on by pastors intentionally. They can work on the worship experience. They can work on their person. They can work on the sense of community and belonging that takes place in their local church. And so when they do those things, over time, the church will be transracial and will be be culturally diverse because God wants that. His house reflects that. His kingdom reflects that great.
0: Pastor Ireland, I hate to interrupt you, but uh, we got to take a quick break. you listen to David Ireland joining us here on The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to continue to be joined by Pastor David Ireland as we discuss his book, One in Christ,
1: Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. So this, this clearly is a topic that you, you are not only Educated and but also passionate about, and I want to I want to ask you another maybe controversial question because another conversation that I see happening a lot, particularly among Christ followers, is really centered around the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm I'm wondering how how have you navigated questions regarding. The statement versus the organization or should we or shouldn't we? Where where do you kind of
2: land in all that and how do you how do you coach people to to think through that? Great question. And I have a responsibility like every pastor to help people navigate these thorny cultural issues. What I say simply is this. Let's separate out the statement Black Lives Matter from the organization or even from people that may comport themselves in ways that's destructive societally. What that statement Black Lives Matter is simply saying is this. Around the table where I call it the ethnic round table, the black, the Asian, the Latino, the Native American, the the Pacific Islanders, the the whites that are sitting around this ethnic round table. All that statement means is this. Black lives matter, too. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not that no one else matters, that no other life matters All that statement means is this. White lives matter. Latino lives matter. Asians lives matter. Native Americans lives matter. But don't forget black lives matter, too. Hmm. Hmm. That's all it means. Hmm. And so when I say it that way, people then say, "I, I support that. The challenge, though, is that when that statement is said without clarification, or the mantra is, is, is communicated in this visceral kind of way, it creates white guilt, white shame, and other kinds of negative repercussions that requires explanation. And so I find myself writing op-ed pieces that get picked up by large periodicals. In fact, if the listener types my name in Google, David Ireland, boom, up comes things because I find that I have a social responsibility and I have a global responsibility, not just to shepherd my congregation, but to shepherd the broader society. So my my pulpit becomes the world. I'm not saying that to put myself on any ego trip because I don't need that. I'm just a simple down-to-earth guy. All I'm saying is that I have a responsibility to speak into the national conversation and bring clarity. And I think that Christ followers earn and deserve the right to sit at the table, this table of academia, the table of business, the table of of, of the popular press, so to speak, and bring clarity so that people can realize that, hey, we don't need to fight one another because we are our brother's keeper. Hmm. Hmm. Pastor Arlen,
0: I'm curious with the couple minutes we have left, uh, with all the work you've done, the writing, particularly over this last month or two, I just am curious. Are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for what you see going on in the church, uh, and where? And
2: if you are hopeful, why do you find yourself hopeful? I'm very hopeful. I'm getting calls from people, secular organizations. One of the big eight accounting firms called me to say, "Can you help us navigate the murky waters of diversity? We don't understand." I'm hopeful in the sense that organizations publicly, like Target committed to give 10 million dollars others are committing monies to bring about equity and justice now that doesn't mean it's not hard work mm-hmm. i think that though i'm hopeful i think that perhaps not in my lifetime will i realize a lot of the the headway and the significant progress that needs to take place in terms of race relations america is increasingly becoming brown the sociologists call it the browning or the tanning of america by 2060, whites are going to be a minority. It's going to be a tough time for whites to see themselves no longer as majority race, but as a minority among this 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 tossed salad, so to so to speak, with the Latino population growing to over 30 percent by 2060, and that's going to be a major issue of people learning how to function. And the church, if the church doesn't get savvy, In terms of intercultural intercultural adeptness and 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 effectiveness, we're not gonna be irrelevant. And so the great commission's at stake, and that's why I'm challenging people everywhere. And maybe I'm not answering your question as succinctly <laughs> <specifically laughs> I need to, but I, I I wanted to let you know and the listeners know, hey, it's the best of times yet the worst of times. But we've make, we've made some progress.
1: Okay. Right, right. No, I think I think that's a great answer. And I know I know that we just have a few moments together, but as we wrap up, I'm wondering, could you just let people know? where they can find you, where they can find your writing, where they can get your book. I would just love for you to take a chance so people can learn more about you.
2: All my social media handles at Dr. Dr. David Ireland, spelled like the country. You can visit my website, davidireland.org. And the book, One in Christ, Bridging the Racial and Cultural divides. you can get that wherever books are sold. But I do want to encourage every listener Download the free workbook it 's not a cheesy workbook. this is seventy pages where i 'm coming alongside of you, not to intimidate hmm. you with this voluminous thing, but take it as it 's a six lesson type of reflection it 's one in book one in christbook.com that 's hmm. one in Christ to get that downloadable free resource. That's wonderful. Well, that other
0: voice you've been hearing is Pastor David Ireland. Uh, Again, we're talking about his book, One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. David is the pastor of a large church in my uh, old neck of the woods, northern New Jersey. And uh, David, we are really appreciative of your time. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure, Brian. Thanks a lot, Ian. It's our pleasure.
0: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian from glad to have you joining us today. A uh, couple different places you can find us on Facebook, the common good radio show there. We put, uh, we put up articles we've discussed also interviews we've done uh, same is at Twitter and Instagram uh, at common good talk. You can find us online at 1160 hope.com and our podcast, wherever it is, you get your podcast, go ahead and subscribe rate and review. And uh the best part of the podcast or these other places is to go find the interviews that we've had the pleasure of doing, like the one we just did with Pastor David Ireland. Uh, we are super thankful for him. He gave us some extra time and uh, it's well worth your listen. So for that reason, go find our podcast and uh, give it a listen. Uh, we're gonna talk about an article out of the Wall Street Journal that says the toll that isolation takes on kids during the coronavirus era. But before we talk about that, Uh, Ian is going to share with us a little bit about Thrivent.
1: Yeah, super quick. If you're brand new to the show, Thrivent.com is a good place to go. I've been a Thrivent member for seven or eight years. They're a Fortune 500 non for profit but it's also, it's so much more than that. One of the things I've appreciated about them is sort of the bridging of like a Christian worldview and really, really uh, significant like financial advice. Plus one of the things they've been doing a lot with is providing free resources and webinars. They had a really great one last night on retirement. I got some good feedback about that. Plus though, if that sounds like a team that you'd want to be a part of, you can go to thriving.com slash careers and you don't have to have any background in finance whatsoever. You just got to like coming alongside people, helping people. So if, uh, if you're looking for that or someone you know is looking for a career change, you can head on over to thriving.com slash careers. And we are super grateful for Thrivent and all the work that they're doing.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, at the Wall Street Journal, the toll that isolation takes on kids during the coronavirus era. We've been at this long enough now, a couple months now that they're starting to see some of the results and the effects of this. And this is uh, a super important conversation right now as it's been debated what should happen with schools coming up here in another month or two. And uh, as cases start to rise in some places, this is uh, an important part of the conversation. So let me read the beginning of this article. After six weeks of lockdown due to COVID-19, Carrie Marshall was getting concerned about her 11-year-old daughter, Chloe. The child missed seeing her friends in person and was becoming frustrated communicating with them solely via uh, FaceTime, TikTok, and the gaming app, Roblox. Uh, it laid bare how important her personal relationships are to her daily happiness, said Miss Marshall. Uh, she is all about her friendships. With many summer camps canceled, many families continuing to practice social distancing, and the upcoming school year a big question mark, pediatricians and psychologists are raising alarms about the potential impact of prolonged social isolation on children. Some point to research that has found an array of benefits of positive peer relationships – Children who have them are more likely to later develop healthy romantic relationships and be more effective at work. Hmm. Good relationships with peers during the teen years are linked, are linked to better health during adulthood. Uh, there's a real connection between having good peer interactions and social emotional well-being, says Rebecca Berry, clinical associate professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at NYU in New York. In certain populations, we're seeing that our depression and anxiety are heightening with continued quarantining we have to start talking about the calculated risk and talking and taking some more. Uh, let me just give you some stats. It says there's already some uh, evidence that social isolation may lead to mental health issues. About 23 percent of elementary school students in the Hubei province in China had more symptom had symptoms of depression and 19 percent had anxiety symptoms after two or more months of home confinement earlier this year during the region's coronavirus outbreak, according to a recent survey. So I'll pause there. Uh, this is yet another arm of this discussion, uh, I believe, Ian, and and it's a really difficult one because even that, psycholo- that psychiatrist said, you know, we got to talk about taking some more risks because this is a really important thing, but yet we want to stay healthy and keep our kids healthy. Uh, this is just a really complex issue that is really difficult to get your arms around.
1: Well, and it's one that I feel like I've been a part of for a long time, having been homeschooled. That was one of the big indictments Uh-oh. or at least perceived indictments of homeschooling. Well, then how will they socialize? And I remember even at the time being super grateful for like a really active youth group. And I played in a band and I played sports so that like there was other avenues, at least to uh, to engage. And part of what the article talks about in a couple of places here is how important it is even for maybe especially socially anxious kids to actually have places to practice. I never really thought about social interaction as a place to like practice and grow in a skill, especially if it's something that produces a lot of anxiety and worry without that practice. They're saying some of these kids are going to have a much harder time, you know, kind of quote unquote bouncing back as things sort of slowly over time return to normal. Some kids are just going to, they're going to click right back in. It's sort of in their wiring. They don't have a whole lot of problem forming relationships deep or otherwise, but that's not true for everybody. And I think it's going to disproportionately affect the kids that like really require faithful, patient, close, meaningful relationships to give them opportunities to, to grow in it. Like it's a muscle or a skill. And I think that's, that's easy to miss. And again, a lot of adults struggle with the same types of things, but I think, I don't know how you were in junior high. Like I still, sometimes if I'm a, a, a conf- remember member conferences, when I've yes, like the conference <laughs> and it's like a lunch buffet thing. And then you have to like turn and decide which round oh, table yes. of eight to sit at that yeah. legitimately like heightened uh, a childlike anxiety in me. I'm like, Oh gosh, I don't know anybody. Where am I going to sit? Not having opportunities to practice those things, I think is going to be uh, a real, a real hurdle for a lot of kids.
0: Absolutely. It says here studies have found that teens and young adults report more feelings of loneliness than any other age group, that social mm. isolation may make these problems worse. Mm. Uh, and then it goes on to say about how connecting virtually just doesn't kind of do it. And so again, there's no real answer to this. And in Illinois, here where when when we moved to phase four, it certainly opened the door to kids being together, but every family's doing it differently. Uh, there's still that anxiety and now with school around the corner and i even heard of a school district today that announced they're going back to school for 2 days a week starting in the fall not 5 days a week and it's going right. to be um, you know all of these are uh necessary right if we're going to try to knock this vi- you know stay ahead of this virus or not even maybe even try to get ahead of this virus um but it's not without its other co- cost and every parent has to kind of wrestle with that uh and i don't know the real right answer and um, you know, I, even to hear a psychiatrist there say, maybe there are some risks, there's some worthwhile risks we need to take, I think is, is daunting for parents to hear because you're like, well, I don't really want to take right. these sort of risks. And so, uh, I don't really even know, uh, where to go with, it. I know with us, we've tried to keep our kids, uh, connected with their friends, but man, we did see it in our kids in varying degrees through the more of the shutdown quarantine. And if that has to happen again here at some point, uh, I do think it's going to be real hard for kids.
1: Well, and the other important part of this discussion that we don't really have time to get into because it's, you know, the quoting different doctors saying, yeah, there's limits though, to like digital play dates and zoom conversations. My mind immediately goes to what about the families that don't have access to a That's laptop, crazy or sure. to internet like a digital playdate is not even an option for them like it's one thing to say yep. yeah these digital options for our kids aren't quite as good as the real thing it'll help kind of accomplish some of those things i think what about the millions of kids that don't have access to any of those luxuries that are maybe quite literally for quite some time only interacting with people under their roof and if you're talking about an only child, you know, how, how much does that exacerbate the feeling of isolation? There's just a, there's a lot of other layers to this too, that I think are, are really, really worth considering. And especially if there becomes a day where we have to tighten up again, like I feel like in the
0: beginning, the kids understood it and then they saw it loosen and loosen and loosen. It's going to be real hard if there has to be a re-tightening, which hopefully does not be the case. Well, we know there's lots of emotions around these sorts of conversations. We would love to hear your feedback. Uh, at our facebook page the common good radio show that's the common good radio show well the first hour is in the books we hope you stay with us one more hour to go today uh, you are listening to the common good on am 1160 your life? coming up this hour a letter written in harper's magazine about cancel culture and then is tiktok still safe you're listening to the common good Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad you're joining us on this steamy Thursday afternoon. Uh, you can find us. You like that. It is steamy out there today. It's like an Never,
2: oven. Yeah, but steamy
1: has a bunch of meanings, though. I, I feel like you, you, I mean, unless that's what you're going for. Like, this is one sexy, <laughs> sultry day. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, let me go on the record as that's what I was. That's not what I was going for. That's my ladder. <laughs> uh, but hey, if that helps you stay on the podcast, go, go nuts, right? So uh, we are glad that you're joining us today. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, go ahead and listen to the first hour where we had Pastor David Ireland. Uh, talking about his book One in Christ, uh, a really uh, interesting guy. We'd encourage you to go listen to that interview if you missed it. Uh, well, you know, I don't know if you saw this at Harper's Magazine. And it was flying around Twitter. It was just called Harper's Letter, uh, and it was uh, a letter on justice and open debate. A letter on justice and open debate. It says below the below letter will be appearing in the letters section of the magazine's October issue. And we welcome responses. And so what made this letter really interesting, and I just want to read, I want to have us read the letter and then talk about it. It's all about cancel culture that we've been talking about, but it was specifically written by a bunch of, uh, a lot of academics and authors uh, mm-hmm. who identify very liberal. Most of these people are very left-leaning uh, and you'll hear that in the, in the, um, in the letter itself. But interestingly, they're getting a lot of heat from other people who would consider themselves left-leaning And so I want to read the letter called a letter on justice and open debate uh, and then have a discussion about it. Let me just read it for us. It says our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in in, uh, Donald Trump who represents a real threat to democracy. But resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or coercion, which right-wing demagogues are already exploiting. The democratic inclusion we want can be achieved only if we speak out against the intolerant climate that has set in on all sides. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, sensuousness uh, is also spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders, in a spirit of panicked damage control, are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study and the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of of reprisal. We're already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement. This stifling atmosphere will ultimately harm the most vital causes of our time. The restriction of debate, whether by repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. Mm. The way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument and persuasion, not by trying to silence and wish them away. We refuse any false choice between justice and freedom, which cannot exist without each other. As writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. We need to preserve the possibility of good faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. If we don't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. So that's a letter. And then there's all these signatures of people that you would uh, you would know, writers and art and other people that you would know. Uh, so I don't know if you read that before this, Ian, but hearing that, uh, what are your thoughts on that on that letter that is pu- being published in Harper's magazine?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to uh, to put myself in the mindset of someone who would really disagree with this. Like maybe someone who is, has really kind of been in the front lines of cancel culture or. Mm-hmm. And again this is a difficult task but I'm trying to get better at, at really trying to I don't know conceive of what the the opposition would be one of my one of my guesses is that this still could potentially look like the powerful protecting the powerful right the mm. the elite protecting the elite you know you mentioned this a bunch of academics a bunch of is it possible I'm sure it is possible but do you think Brian it, there any of the pushback or resistance to something like this might come from the perspective of someone who feels like, well, of course y'all want to have each other's back, but that's part of how unjust institutions perpetuate because y'all are in cahoots with each other. And so this tidal wave of cancel culture, which you and I have both been pretty vocal about. I'm not really a fan of, Uh, I don't even really think cancel culture is Christian, but Mm. could you, could you conceive of a perspective that might say, Yeah, what you're saying here maybe sounds good and lofty, but what it really potentially does is to set up more and more safeguards, or make it harder and harder for people to call out injustices within within a particular infrastructure because everyone on the inside already kind of has each other's back. You you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It not only makes sense.
0: That is kind of the pushback. It's funny you say that. You've got your uh, uh, you kind of are guessing where it has gone. A lot of the pushback I saw was basically right along those lines. Like uh, this is the point that people were saying that, that we need to be able to hold these ideals up and, um, uh, and that you guys are just kind of a club that's want to do this. But again, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting who some of these writers are, right? Everybody from Malcolm Gladwell, who we've talked about to David Brooks, to JK Rowling, she's been in the news uh, to Salman Rushdie, uh, the ultimate, uh, <laughs> they tried to cancel him. Right. Uh, and many, many others. Um, do you tend to, I, I appreciate you saying you want to put yourself in what's the opposite here, but where do you tend to land on this? Do you tend would you assign this? Would you, if you were in this group of people that would fit under this umbrella, do you think this is something you would have signed?
1: Oh boy. Uh, there's not, uh, that's a really tricky question. I mean, even mm. looking at some of the names that have signed, it's hard to not associate some of my preconceived positions and opinions no. about them. You know what I mean? Like, Oh no, yeah. Oh, that kind of person would sign it. Well then yes, or, or no. I mean, either way it's just simply, it almost yeah. would be better if I hadn't looked at the names that have signed it. Um, so I, yeah, again, I feel like I'm saying this a lot today. I don't, I don't actually know because I, I do think that there needs to be, that. there needs to be some swift action in the cases of abuse exploitation. You know, we talked, I mean, again, like I think in a lot of ways, the example a lot of people think of is Bill Cosby which is maybe not necessarily a great example now of what cancel culture has sort of become. But in the case of Bill Cosby, you're like, yeah, the the guy absolutely deserves to be in prison. And if people want to say, hey, let's not support a single dime going toward him, I'm like, yeah, I'm for that. I'm -hmm. I'm for that. Him being canceled, it pains me because, you know, I, I grew up listening to his comedy, so there's some pain there for sure. But there have been, there certainly have been other cases, though, where somebody maybe misspoke and it wasn't actually reflective of their real position and mm-hmm. the online mob mentality says this person's done forever here's their address here's the business they own let's mm-hmm. destroy them i'm like ah, okay but they misspoke i don't know again i'm not even thinking of any specific examples i just it's yeah. tricky for me to really have uh undying faith in the moral compass of the mob mentality you know what i
0: mean yeah yeah and we would love to hear your response to this on our facebook page because Uh, It does make sense to your writers and people saying, we want to have a little bit of freedom and not have to think immediately, how are people going to react to this? But uh, maybe you think it's a good thing that people are reacting swiftly and doing this. So you can find this at our Facebook page. Uh, Take a read of this letter and give us your thoughts. The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, I'm going to play a short clip uh, that happened on CNN, I believe, last night. And we're going to have a little theology discussion about it. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We really appreciate you joining us today. A couple different places that you can find us on the interwebs. One of those being Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, Online, 1160Hope.com and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We do appreciate those of you who do it. Ian is going to tell us a bit about Thrivent. Before we do that, did you just hear my nine-pound dog barking uh, crazily? Could you hear that
1: over the air? I couldn't, but I also have the hearing of a 140-year-old, so <laughs> I might, mine or might no. not be the right gauge to be asking from.
0: Some of you, sometimes I feel like my dog just knows, like she can hear me say, welcome back to the common good. And she just starts barking, just goes for it. It's <laughs> like, that's like her cue, like, okay. And disrupt. Uh, Pippa remembers that one time she was on very clearly. So now she's got a little bit of a, of a complex, like this is my show. I'm coming back on. So
1: uh, that's one of my, my favorite memories
0: of this show. Oh, it was good. It was good. Never has our show sounded so smart. <laughs> Uh, Before we play a clip that was on CNN last night, as I said, Ian is going to tell us about one of our uh, partners at Thrivent.
1: I would love to. So Thrivent.com, if you've not yet gone there, I'd encourage you to do that now. Check out maybe Action Teams. That's one of my favorite things that Thrivent does. If you're not familiar, they're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit, which is, I guess, unique. There's not a lot that fit in that category. And I've been a member for years. I love what they do, but I also love sort of their Christian worldview that they bring into how they handle money and generosity and all that stuff. But if you're interested in a career change, Thriving.com slash careers is a great place to check out. If you know someone who's out of work or looking for a change, you don't even need to have a background in money or finance. You just need to love coming alongside people, helping people out, community engagement, working with a great team. So Thriving.com slash careers would be a great place to check out.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things that I was seeing, you know, every now and then when you and I are preparing for the show, one of the ways we do that is just to go, what's everybody talking about on Twitter? And uh, I saw this clip floating around, many people commenting on it from CNN last night. Uh, It is Don Lemon talking to Chris Cuomo. So they're kind of doing that where they're going from Don Lemon show to Chris Cuomo show or vice versa. I don't know whose show is first. And they're kind of the handoff where they're talking to each other. And Don Lemon is talking about the founding fathers not being perfect, that many of them owned slaves. Congress refused to do anything about slavery. But there was something interesting that he said that kind of set, particularly Christian Twitter, ablaze. I want you to hear that right now.
1: Engaged in a discussion. But here's the thing Jesus Christ, if you believe in, if, you, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ, admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. So why are we deifying? the founders of this country, many of whom owned slaves. And in the Constitution, the original one, they didn't want uh, they, they put slavery in there that that slavery uh, should should be abolished because it was the way the king. wanted. And then
0: the, the Congress said, no way. All right. So what stood out to everybody uh, that was sharing this was his line. Jesus Christ was not perfect when he was on this earth. And uh, lots of people, lots of Christ followers going a bit crazy about that, kind of writing to Don Lemon and stuff like this. You know, I want to take this two ways. Let's start with this one. Um, As a pastor, how would you answer to people who say, how do we why do we believe Jesus was perfect? Or why is that important that Jesus was without sin? How would you answer theologically that question for people?
1: Oh, I would say here is the phone number of my friend, Brian, call him <laughs> up and ask what he thinks, because he's the one that decided to do this segment and he's already thought of this. So give him a call and uh, ask him that question. That's what I would say.
0: That's 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 passing the buck. But I'd, be, I'd gladly take that call. A <laughs> uh, couple different verses that I think are important. Right. First Peter, chapter two says. Uh, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or Hebrews 4.14 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, and 1 John 3.5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him uh, there was no sin. So just a couple different passages there. Uh, you
1: uh, hold on. You just Googled that, didn't you? Because I'm looking at the same article right now with those I three did verses it. in that.
0: <laughs> oh, I did totally Google it. I said, Where where are the verses? Oh, most people think us pastors have this just ready to go. Not right, true right, right, right at <laughs> all. Am I am I letting people behind the
1: curtain too much there? <laughs> well no, and, and this is um this is part of what I would love. Maybe this isn't where you intended this to go, and I should just answer your questions. Part part of part of what I think people might take issue with is well, did did Jesus ever claim that he was perfect?
0: Hmm. How would you answer that? Since Because I, I would tell people to call you and because uh, I would say, hey, Ian asked that question. So how would you answer that?
1: <laughs> well, I think that there's probably a couple of things that need consideration. One, you know, trusting in the authority of Scripture is a really important component of, well, being a Christian, a Christ follower. But there's a lot of things that we hold as pretty central. I mean, the word Trinity doesn't show up in scripture either. You know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. certainly aspects to our faith that you don't necessarily see in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic in, in these original texts. So then what are, what are we doing with those doctrines? Where do those, where do those come from? It, it requires some level of trust in our tradition. In you know, we could talk about Canon if you wanted. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what do we mean when we say, the authority of scripture, because that means a lot of things for a lot of different people. Um, what do we mean by inspiration? What do we mean by you could get into inerrancy and There's all these other components of how, how the Bible has been interpreted differently throughout the centuries. And even currently right now, you know, by, by some estimates, there's something like, I just read it recently, like 33,000 different Christian denominations worldwide. Woo, wow. So, yeah. That means that there's at least Thirty-three thousand different positions on some of these, sometimes what we would call key biblical issues. One that I find interesting is even what we mean by perfect. You know, because often perfect and sinless are used synonymously. But like, how Brian, how would you answer this question? Did Jesus ever like trip and fall? Right? Like did he? I got that's you. not. That's, that's he, not sin. But did he? Did he ever like? Hit his thumb while building a table? Like, was he ever, did he ever, you know what I mean? Misspeak? Yeah. Yeah. Those were more mistakes, but not necessarily sin. And if, and does that make a difference? If you're like, nope, Jesus, every table he made was perfect. Every (laughs) step, he never burned dinner. He never, none of that. Um, does, Does it in any way in your mind, like, diminish the authority of Jesus? If you find out, like, oh, yeah, I think he did actually stub his toe and skid his knee and, you know, maybe, maybe spoke out of turn or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that changes things for you or if you think it changes things for people.
0: Yeah. It doesn't change anything for me. It's one of the things that I've loved uh, about our friend Dallas Jenkins in the chosen was kind of showing that humanity of Jesus. Um, And I did want to go one other route with this, but I think you make a good point about, you know, sometimes we just assume things. It, It takes a lot of work and a lot of thought and, um, but also, I was—I I shouldn't be surprised by this. But the way people came at Don Lemon, I don't know Don Lemon's background. He might claim to be a Christ follower, but if he doesn't, why would he believe that Jesus was perfect? <laughs> you yeah, know right, what I mean? Right, right. Uh, and, and be like coming at him like he spoke heresy is like, well, maybe he just doesn't believe that. And uh, and I think he, you know, that's problematic and wrong. But I, it was interesting to me that people really went at him so hard. And I get it—cable news, all this kind of stuff—but. Uh, maybe that's not the right tact. And I probably, though you probably would agree. I probably shouldn't be surprised that people went at him really hard, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that always, that surprises me that you're surprised. That like, wow, surprised. The internet was kind of mean. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah man, <laughs> that's, that's the internet. <laughs> wow. That internet really turned. <laughs> you know what, sometimes people are unkind to other people online. I'm like, yeah,
0: <laughs> That's, It's almost
1: almost harder to find people being nice to one another.
0: Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. We're going to put this up on our Facebook page. This uh, clip would love to know your thoughts. Speaking of the internet and uh, some of the craziness behind it, there's a new report that maybe the app, the very popular app TikTok uh, is not so secure to the point that the U.S. is thinking about uh, not making it available. We're going to talk about that next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are excited to have you joining us today. Let us remind you again, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. There you can interact with the articles we've discussed, the interviews we've done. Uh, You can interact with other listeners uh, and uh, all sorts of fun over there at our Facebook page. You can do the same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, Find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful for those of you uh, who do that. So, uh, Ian, let me begin by asking this question. Are you a user of the app TikTok? Oh, I'm a big TikToker, Brian. I mean, you do strike me as one who would be into the TikTok. How dare you? Uh, can you even explain TikTok for people? What is it? Like short no. bursts of video usually tends to be people dancing.
1: I'm so unfamiliar. I, ha- I have no idea. I think it's, more it's like or- I think it's more like Vine than anything else, okay. but I, I don't know. You have high school. Are your kids on TikTok? They thankfully are not. <laughs> and uh, and uh, anyway, I
0: probably, I clearly cannot explain TikTok to you. Well, this is going to uh, be a fun so- segment then. There is something interesting going on about the Trump administration. Uh, Secretary Pompeo yesterday hinted that the Trump administration might ban TikTok uh, over uh, some issues with the Chinese government. What do you have to add to this story? Anything?
1: Oh, here we go. The Trump administration is apparently considering a ban on Chinese social media apps, including the popular video app TikTok. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo mentioned the possibility on Tuesday, saying it was Something we're looking at in a Fox News interview with Laura Ingram. Pompeo offered few specifics and the comments could easily have been bluster, but he also compared TikTok to, oh boy, Huawei and ZTE, two companies who have suffered very real consequences after drawing U.S. government ire. With tensions rising between the U.S. and China, Trump trying to ban TikTok isn't out of the question. And while it's not nearly as simple as Pompeo and Ingram make it sound, it could still cause trouble for the company and its users. The most intense app bans happen at the network level, blocking any communication between the targeted servers and users in the country. That's the approach taken by China's great firewall, and it's how India enforces its recently implemented TikTok ban. Oh, I did not know that. It goes on to say Australia, which is considering a similar ban, would likely take the same approach. Oh, okay. This is news to me. But American law doesn't have any precedent for blocking software in that way. So it seems unlikely that the White House would be able to follow through on that kind of heavy handed network censorship. It does not surprise me that India has that infrastructure in place. It does surprise me a little bit that apparently Australia already has those capabilities. That, that is strange to me. That's interesting. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I'm already learning more about how these things would even be banned, but it, it does feel like, Oh, I don't know. Again, your kids aren't on it. I could kind of care less about it. What, Let me let me just ask you this unanswerable question. What would be the like social societal response if we learned tomorrow morning like, yep, it's banned entirely. Like what would what would happen on social media if if that were to happen, do you think?
0: Yeah. And it's no small deal. I read this other article that we've posted here that TikTok could lose up to six billion dollars as a result of the India ban. That is a lot of money. Wow. Wow. Apparently TikTok was really big in India. See, we and I are learning a lot through these. Uh, I think that there would be a segment of the population that would say, oh, I'm really glad that they did that. I had no idea. And I don't want to compromise uh, not just national security, but my own security. Hmm. Um, But there would certainly be an outcry, too, about censorship, about, uh, you know, nobody. uh, There's a lot of people who do not uh, like when anybody steps in and uh, kind of regulates things on the internet. Uh, and, uh, so you would certainly hear that. I think you'd hear both. Uh, for me, uh, I didn't hear it, And I kind of wanted to have this discussion too. I never even think about, I'm one of those naive people who doesn't think about like, Oh, if I download this app who might have access to my, you know, information and what could they do with that information? Whenever I read stories like this, you don't think about that at all. Not really. I know I'm 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 telling you right now that I'm like the worst internet like app person in the world. And so when I read stuff like this and they're like hey the the government might step in and protect you, I'm one of those people who's like good, thank you, but I totally get the other side who's like well why does the government get to decide in the sense. So you're surprised when you download something, how do you figure out what do you what's the process you go through to make sure that it's a safe app?
1: You you read the terms.
0: Yeah, the, the end. That's yeah, I need to say, okay. <laughs> so what would you find in the terms that would uh I'm sounding terrible here. <laughs> I'm really kind of uh exposing myself here. What would you uh what would in the app what would in the terms cause you to go nope, I'm not I'm not downloading TikTok or whatever else.
1: I mean, it usually has to do with data um and and what kind of I mean, it it all it it's a matter of your own personal preference. On one end, you you could even like you keep you know, using the word naive, but even if you weren't naive, even if you had read it all and you came to the conclusion like, ah, they have access to all that anyway, or enough companies already have access to it. What's one more? You know, I think a lot of people probably are, are thorough and still ultimately their, their decision at the end of the day is, yeah, my information is not really my own anyway. I want to be able to play this game. Right. I think the nice thing, I mean, I, you know, the terms are boring. Like they're really boring and no doubt. I think that needs way to do that. It's just a quick Google search like, hey, what are the mm. issues or what were, What would be some things to consider before downloading this app? And I guarantee you somebody's already written a blog about it and they've broken it down and they've explained the fancy pants language and they've helped you assess your risk. Like, There's enough people that literally make it their job to help inform the public about what you're signing up for when you download this app. And it's so accessible and so easy just to type in. Uh, How much of my data am I giving away if I download Marco Polo? And then there's 15 blogs about people who have taken a deep dive to figure out exactly what it looks like. And then you can make an educated decision for yourself. Interesting. I have
0: literally never done that. I'm I'm now (laughs) going to start doing that. And the bigger deal for me when I read articles like this, quite frankly, the bigger deal for me is my kids. Um, yeah, of course the number of things that they download versus like, if you looked at my phone and looked at the number of apps on there, you'd be like, you've got nothing. Like I see Facebook, Twitter, and like ESPN, (laughs) that's, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, I don't do a good enough job of learning. Uh, like I know what my kids have on their phones, but I don't know what all of it does. You know what I mean? Or what's happening. Right. And so these kind of articles, uh, remind me, uh, I got to do better. And, I jokingly say I'm naive, but like you said, there's other people who are not naive out there uh, who uh, have done the work. So what would you say to somebody like me or other parents out there, uh, Ian, let's pretend you're a youth pastor and you're doing a uh, you're doing a teaching for parents on you know phones, apps, technology for your kids. What's one or two things that you would encourage all parents to do as kids are getting phones around this subject of apps and this? Is it just what you said? Go read the blogs or is there anything else?
1: No, I mean, literally, you could go right now and Google how to monitor my kid's phone use. And you will see a dozen articles and there's apps that the parents can download to better monitor what their kids are doing and how the different apps work. I mean, and most of this stuff is free or really cheap. I mean, literally, I just yep. I just did it right now while I was talking. There's so many blogs and apps because a lot of parents feel this way. Like, I, I mean, they, my kid knows yep. technology better than I do. How do I? How am yep. I even supposed to keep up? And there's a lot of people that would say, well, yeah, if your kid knows enough, though, they're, they're going to be able to work around those apps. But you got to start somewhere. And the internet, it, you know, has a lot of downfall, but there's a treasure trove of resources for parents to do exactly what you're asking. You, you yep. just have to take the time to Google it.
0: I've never sounded older or sadly more disengaged. I'm going to do this. Great. Great to I'm going to do sometimes the uh, common good radio show serves as a confessional for me. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show uh, in a way that we've done often through this pandemic. And that's just with some good news, hopefully some things that will inspire us and put a smile on your face. That's what we're going to do next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, And we are going to end the show the way we've ended a lot of the shows during the pandemic. Sometimes we do interweb insanity where we just... Uh, try to laugh and cringe at the stories out there on the internet. But Ian introduced us earlier in the pandemic to a website called the Good News Network. And at the Good News Network, what they do is they just post good news. They post stories that uh, are supposed to put a smile on your face, inspire you. Because sometimes, you may not know this, when you're on the internet, uh, sometimes it can uh, get you down a little bit. But Mm -hmm. we want to uh, give you some good news. So we've got four of them here. And uh, let me read this first one. The first one says this. Strangers bought all the frozen pops from old man's cart to help him get out of heat. Then they gave him $60,000. Yeah. This heartwarming story began unfolding on Father's Day when some good Samaritans got creative so they could get an elderly man out of the heat. The 70-year-old man was pushing a cart around a Chicago neighborhood. Hard work for anyone on a hot summer day. But now... Thanks to some sweet customers and the kindness that went viral, he may finally have the opportunity to enjoy retirement. Uh, Rosario del Rio works harder than most than many folks at his age. Uh, Until this month, he had been working as a carpenter from home. Since an injury forced him to take a break from his profession, he has pushed a refrigerator cart through the streets selling. uh, How do you say that Mexican style ice pops? Paetas? Yeah. Well done. To neighbors. Uh, Don Rosario, as he is affectionately known, was born in Mexico, wears a cowboy hat and goes around selling frozen treats. It may have been a holiday for dads across the U.S., but Don Rosario, it was another day at the office. Since Oscar Gonzalez and his friend Victor Dominguez were hosting a Father's Day barbecue for families, they invited him to join them. Everyone bonded quickly, and before long, they decided to buy all the payadas in Don Rosario's cart so he could go home and rest. One of their friends recorded a video of the heartwarming sale and posted it on the social media app, TikTok, just discussed. After the video went viral, the family used the publicity to set up a fundraiser that could help the immigrant retire. Here's the good news. The initial goal was to raise $10,000 for their new friend. But generous strangers from all over the world ended up contributing more than $62,000 to the GoFundMe. Hopefully, he will now be able to retire. That there is some good news. <laughs> that right. there? Where did that, where did that come that from? That there. All right. You were having some computer problems, so I don't know if these loaded for you. Are you able to do the next one?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go. go. Let's do it. I love go this ahead. next one. Students overwhelmed after landlord gives them, quote, good tenant bonuses on top of <laughs> returning their security deposits. Seven students renting an apartment together were each left stunned and overwhelmed with kindness when they had to move out and deal with their landlord over the security deposit. They had lived in their Leeds, England apartment for three years, and when it came time for the landlord to say goodbye, he not only returned their deposits, he added, get this, a 20% bonus, and strangers far and wide were applauding the kindness. Maisie, a 22-year-old psychologist student at the University of Leeds, posted a screenshot on Twitter sharing the text message that her landlord, John, sent to all his departing tenants. The caption read, a nice student landlord, love you, John, and it received a whopping two hundred and sixty-five thousand wow. likes. It goes on to kind of tell you some of the details of the story, but you gotta, you gotta love that kind of stuff because, like, if I would, if I would have began this story saying an interaction between students and a landlord leaves both parties stunned, you know, you would have, right. you would of course assume, oh, well, something awful happened, something negative happened, and I just, yes. this is why I love Good News Network because. There's no bigger metaphor. There's no like political lobbying. It's just like, hey, here's just a good story of good things happening. And uh, they want to celebrate that. That's why I love this website. That's
0: right. The next one says this. Wine fairies have been anonymously gifting booze and treats to neighbors who could use a smile. (laughs) You got to see this picture. They're dressed up like fairies. Uh, An endearing new movement for neighborly kindness is putting a benevolent twist on the game of ding dong ditch it. As a means of cheering up American communities during the COVID-19 outbreaks, mysterious groups of do-gooders known as wine fairies have been leaving wine and treats on people's doorsteps. The first sisterhood of the Traveling Wine Facebook group was founded by a mom who (laughs) wanted to spread joy by leaving bottles of wine on the doorsteps of strangers and friends and neighbors. Hundreds of other wine fairy Facebook groups with as many as 78,000 members have now appeared across the country As COVID-19 continues to keep people six feet apart, the fairies collect the addresses of wine lovers in their communities and ask which varieties of wine they would prefer to receive. The members dressed in wings, tutus and magic wands, then tiptoe to people's doors, place their gifts on the stoops, ring the bells and run for cover. What a fabulous idea. And, uh, Yes, ding dong ditching, but with wine and treats, that would be a that would be a nice gift to receive.
1: You guys really should see this picture of Brian in a tutu. It's a really, <laughs> a really flattering picture. And I'm so glad that you decided to share this story with us, Brian. Well <laughs> All
2: You're right. Welcome.
1: last but not least, here's the last story out of Good News Network. Humble bus driver uses lockdown and constant nudges from students to finally get college degree. Though he grew up in Tennessee and tried college for a while, it wasn't until he moved to Massachusetts and began driving a school bus full of teens that he became inspired to head back to the classroom himself. Clayton Ward credits his students he was transporting to their Farmingham High School for helping him rediscover his dream of earning a college degree. I really enjoyed working with kids, especially the high school students, and during the bus routes, we would chat about their classes, and as a history buff, I would share lessons that I learned in school, and we talked a lot about academics. After after several of these discussions, some of the students would tell me they wanted to wanted me to be their teacher. I think they only said that because I was a different person than their regular teacher, educating them in a different kind of unique way. But however, uh, however small the mention was from those kids, it stuck out with him and provided the motivation to complete a goal he had started years before. Talking mm-hmm. to the students on his school bus every day. Renewed his sense of passion for expanding and teaching young minds, He enrolled at Mass Bay Community College in May two thousand and nineteen with the goal of earning his degree, transferring to a four year institution and someday teaching history to high school students, just as he did with the kids on his bus. Clayton worked full time driving the bus uh, driving the school bus while attending classes full time at Mass Bay, he focused on doing the best he could in all his classes and it paid off. He earned a spot on the dean 's list every semester. Mm-hmm was inducted into the Phi Theta Kappa National Honor Society and graduated with a perfect 4.0 average. Last month, he earned the All-Division Award for having the highest GPA in the Humanities and Social Sciences Division and in the Liberal Arts Program. And there's more to the story, obviously, but I-, I think stories like this, again, yes. it's sort of a theme, too, like young the young young people uh, yes. inspiring him to do this. Typically, if the headline was like, oh, run in with students and bus driver doesn't go as planned, you would assume something negative, but it's, it's not. And I, uh, I think it's important, especially with all the negativity that we see in the news and on social media. I think, I think it's good to highlight stories like these.
0: It totally is because you and I, for good reason, we regularly talk about uh, the bad news that's out there or the things, the dangers of social media, but to see what people are doing in these strange and difficult times. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, I think you make a great point there that how, these stories about young people Doing things uh, to inspire people, because I know when I was riding my bus, I wasn't inspiring in junior high and high school, my uh, my bus driver. And when when me and my college friends were living in an apartment, we would not have been getting a a, a good tenant uh, break, those kinds of things. So mm. I do find those inspiring as well. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. If you didn't uh, hear the interview with Pastor David Ireland, I'd encourage you to go to the Facebook page or to our podcast and listen to that. We hope you have a great night. We're glad you joined us. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.